Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Tonight, we are talking with Imam Dai Abdullah. He's one of five Imams worldwide who are openly gay. He lectures nationally and internationally on progressive Muslim concepts, interfaith and interfaith networking, and the development of inclusive and progressive revisions of Islamic theological thought and Islamic law. He actively promotes understanding and awareness of issues of racial, gender, and sexual equality, as understood in the UN Declaration of Human Rights within and beyond Muslim communities. He's executive director of Mecca Institute, which is the Muslim Education Center for Creative Academics, a Muslim think tank, an online Islamic theological school, teaching an inclusive liberation theology and interpretation of Quran. As Imam and education director at Light of Reform Mosque, He provides pastoral counseling for Muslim youth, adults, their families, and friends. He performs same-sex, opposite-sex, and interfaith marriages for Muslims and non-Muslims of diverse backgrounds. Well, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Um, We had a few technical difficulties, but we persevered. (laughs) So welcome. (laughs) How are you today? I'm doing well, Michelle. Thank you very much for inviting me again, and it's a pleasure. Well, you know, I always look forward to talking to you. You know, we both share roots in Detroit, but we run into each other all over the country, and I think that that's just spectacular, the work that you're doing. And I think that especially today and this world that we're in, boy, I'm telling you, I mean, to be a not a fly on the wall, but a fly sitting on your shoulder as you navigate through life. I mean, what, what an education that might be, must be. So how are things with you these days? I know that, um, I'm going to tell you, it's brave. I mean, just being who you are. I know that as an African-American man, you know, someone who clearly practices your faith, you know, even in the past, when you walked into the room, you probably got looks. But now, with this Islamophobia that's going on, how is life? <laughs> life is just as beautiful as it always has been. It continues to unfold and be. I, of course, as with anything, you have to be flexible and adjust to the circumstances, depending on the certain place you are at the time who you're dealing with and those things, but I find that with a calm and clear head and being very attentive, listening well, and understanding if you have questions, asking those questions for clarification, I find that the pathway 
unfolds before me and rarely are there any complications. Um, I returned from overseas on the 2nd of February from the Far East after the ban was initiated and I had no problems. So mm-hmm. I think that um, presence of mind and also um, focus on where you're going and what things you need to do also help a lot. Though I do know that there are a number of, of Muslims of various backgrounds, uh, both native and immigrant, who have faced some issues. Uh, but sometimes I think some of those things are part of the, the learning curve that's important for people, and particularly Muslims in the U.S., to further and more fully develop their understanding of integrating all types of Muslim Islams, that's the plural, that are resident here in the United States and that dealing with some of the issues of racism and things like that are going to continue to be uh, ongoing struggles as we move forward. Now, you talked about, you know, just a minute ago, you said how the path unfolds before you. How did the path unfold before this young man from Detroit to take you there? I mean, I'm sure that, and I mean, we've talked before, and I know that your family was not Muslim, but what led you in that direction? What led you to that path? Well, just to do it quickly, because you're talking about a good 67-year story, but let me put it sort of succinctly. Um, growing up, very open-minded parents. Um, all of them were very um, progressive in their thinking. They were civil rights movement people. They were uh, black college-educated folks, and they were in Detroit, a, a, a place where economic stability was possible for black families. And in Mars in particular, though my father worked as a postman for several decades, my mother came from a business family, so we had family cleaners in the city. And so uh, that was one of the ways in which we, uh, you know, grew and developed and everything. But to make the story very, very short, at 15 I came out to my parents as I was graduating from high school and told them that I was gay. And through that process of conversation, they were very, very supportive of me. And because of that, that puts me, uh, or that put me in a position where I moved forward as I left to go to college, that I was supported by my family, they didn't see anything wrong with me, and that I was definitely on my way. I was just one of their children who was upheld all the standards that they wanted for their kids. So I moved forward in that way and later met other black um, gay men and lesbians who also had that same kind of support in their families, too, so it wasn't like I was an oxymoron of any type. Mm-hmm. So that's how that came about in terms of my family. But how I got to Islam came about a little over a decade later when I decided I was going to, well, I had a vision, actually. I was working as a course stenographer for the IRS and traveling all over. And you know there are times when you feel very comfortable, you're doing well, making money, all those things, which tells you you have success, but then you feel something hollow. You don't quite feel completely um, secure, full within yourself. And it was at that point I decided I needed to meditate and decide what I was going to do with my life. So I meditated and asked God for 
something to do that would help me help other people as well. And I must say to all your listeners, be very careful what you ask God for. <laughs> God will give it to you in great abundance. So uh, that started the process. I wound up, um, the vision came back and said to study Chinese. Now, in 1979, or 1980, basically, you have someone, you know, well, that's, I'm sorry, it wasn't that early, but it was like in 1982, yes, 82, when that vision came to me. And I prepared myself, and I went looking to see where I could study Chinese, and I wound up at Georgetown University with a full fellowship, but they called the community fellowship, and nine months later I was in Beijing University continuing my studies. Hmm. Wow. I mean, you know, that's amazing that, like you said, be careful what you ask for, because I'm sure that back in the day, I mean, you were like, I'm going to go, and it's going to lead me to China, and it's going to lead to this, you know, that, that pathway. But then also that being open to that, you know, you put that out there, and then you were open to following that path. I mean, how did that, you know, did that come from the encouragement you had always felt as, as you were growing up, like, to like, if this is your path, go out and do it? I mean, or... It, was it a combination of that or the meditation on it that you had been doing? I think it was a combination of the two, um, but the meditation helped me focus in on exactly where I needed to be at that time. And not knowing where this was going to take me, um, I was just very open to see where it was going to wind up placing me in the world. And part of the process, having been exposed to other things and have traveled before, I was very open to seeing what, what the results could be. And boy, was I pleasantly surprised because I, I never thought that starting the process would take me to the numerous places and winding up in such wonderful places with so many unique people that I would wind up where I'm at today. Because if someone had told me 30 years ago, 35 years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing today, I would look at them like, I, I don't know what you're smoking, but you're <laughs> not smoking anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but it's you, just you know, one of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I think that when you're relating this, particularly, I mean, I have met young people, I mean, from Detroit who have been as limited as not seeing, you know, themselves ever you know, living outside of Detroit to on a national platform when you talk to, well, you know, we are connected to the world. And I don't know if it, it, and I guess in some ways it is something that's sort of taught is like we feel some people in our community, the black community, and all particularly the black gay community, that we might not be welcome or that, you know, wow, we can't go there that we would face so much hatred there because we're used to experiencing that here. When you got ready, I mean, and you've traveled everywhere. When you show up, I mean, and, and they look and they go, like, oh, this is a, an African-American, you know, an African-American man. What do you find are the stereotypes you face, and how do you overcome that? I mean, when you walk into that room and you see that space and maybe there's that moment of quiet, like, Particularly, I mean, if you're going, 
you speak Chinese. Okay. I mean, it's like, yeah, sure he does. I mean, how do you overcome that? Well, a lot of times you don't go in with a, a, a bold, and I mean, my presence is very bold. When I walk, like you said, when I walk in the room, I draw attention. So I don't need to do anything outrageous to draw attention to myself, but it's just in the process that we just happen to be out and then I run across a Chinese person and I start speaking Chinese to them. Or I run across a person from uh, who may be familiar with Arabic and I start speaking to them. So it's those kinds of things that just happen, not me pushing them forward. And that is the way in which people then go, well, um, you're unusual, why are this? And of course, it's just to let them know that just because you have never seen something before doesn't mean it doesn't exist. See, when I was a kid, I, um, I was very much into history, black history, and Paul Rosen was one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. And Paul Rosen was a genius, I mean, a black genius. And with his knowing over 100 languages, being a lawyer and well-trained in various things, he just helped me keep an open mind that no matter what, if you sought education, you could fulfill it. And what you could do with it, what those things were that you wanted to do were boundless. And that's always been my inspiration to, if there's a mountain to be climbed, prepare and climb it. You never know what height you, you know, from that height what you'll see and what can become a focus for you to find additional success. How many languages do you speak? Well, including my mother tongue of English, I speak Mandarin Chinese, and I also speak what they call modern standard Arabic. And I do have a reading facility for classical Arabic. And um, that's it. I mean, I did study some Russian because when I was um, in the Middle East, I found that when you were in classes, you have to take something as you advance, take something that will challenge your language ability. So you take some courses that you have some interest in, and it helps you become a better speaker in the language. So I did study a little bit of Russian, but I've forgotten most of that now, by now. You <laughs> know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's the thing. Like, I agree with you because I know I grew up, and I was always fascinated by that era where you saw the people like the Paul Ropes and, I mean, different African-Americans who went all over the place, and they were, I mean, it was just like, bold and they made their mark and they did that and to, and to study and do that and that ability that we can we can accomplish so much more than you know what the box that they want to put us in yeah. um so tell us a little bit okay to move up okay how would people who are not familiar with the islamic faith and, and how would you, you know, many people, they are rooted in Christianity where they know that there's deacon, bishop, and whatever. How would you talk about what the role of an imam is? Okay. Well, it's equivalency. An imam would be similar to a rabbi or a reverend or a priest, depending mm-hmm. on what type of um Christianity may come from, and it's they're all part of the Abrahamic faith. They're just they're sisters basically. Have Judaism is the oldest sister, Christianity is the middle, and Islam is the youngest sister. And when people understand more clearly the interconnectedness of 
Islam to the very vehement face. I think they find a, a very strong, or at least an ability to open up and see that there's a, a, a much larger connectedness rather than having difference make the determination, meaning that many of the prophets are the same, our histories are in, intertwined, and um, Muslims, since they were the last group to um, develop from that process, from, from that trilogy, that um, understanding is that Muslims do know, at least at the time when Islam came about, they had some familiarity with Christian, Christianity and also Judaism as being part of their cultural milieu. And therefore, some of the ways in which the Quran speaks, there's an ex expectation uh, that you do have some familiarity with the other faiths. But I think one of the major things that happened is that because of, of religious history, um, sometimes the ways in which information or the way certain tenets developed come from a variety of different sources. And when people are unfamiliar with those ways or those, um, that history, I think that that's when they, uh, when mythology steps in, and often mythology has a person believing one thing which may not be factually true, and I think it's important that people do do some study in their religious faith to understand it better and the interconnectedness between the, the ones. Now, I know that I think that most for most people, the the most famous transformation had been when Malcolm X was had initially had been in the nation of Islam, but then he converted. And I mean, if you read it, it seems like a door opening, uh, really helping him to understand and express his interconnectivity, his humanity. Do you often have to explain to people, because they look at you, I mean, particularly here, when they look at you and they go like, well, here's a black man and he's from Detroit, well, he must be um, part of the nation of Islam. Do you often have to explain the difference? And what is the connection now? Is there a relationship between the nation of Islam and the greater Islamic faith? Okay. Um, I'll deal with the latter first. But there, <laughs> there, is, um, there is a connection in that people, at least I as a progressive uh, Muslim, except that when people I say that they identify as Muslim, I accept that. Now, how they may manifest it can be in various ways. Some people are Muslim and they recognize it through their culture, but they may not be of the faith in terms of being believers. They may be what some refer to as ex-Muslims or those who are not um, participating in the religious rituals. So um, NOI is still considered part of the, being part of the Muslim faith, but not in the same way that um, more people are, are attuned to looking at the five different major schools of faith within Islamic context, but um, that's not limited or that does not limit the whole framework in which one can identify as being Muslim. Now, the other side, uh, going back to the former part, is that when people see me quite often, there, there may be a presumption of that, but I think because of the way in which I talk and speak about subject matter, I'm not referring to Minister Farrakhan in any way, and I re reference the Quran because I'm a Quran-only um, mm -hmm. 
scholar. And so I think from the way they hear me speak, they know that I'm very different than what um, they may hear and um, on the Internet or hear a person speaking because of my not only my, my own individual differences, but also because of my exposure to the Muslim world and having lived there, studied there, and even working as an expat, how I became associated and knowledgeable on a number of different aspects in terms of the cultures in which Islam went into over the last 1,500 years. In this country, I mean, and I have, I would say that I know more people who are Muslims as opposed to, I mean, I don't know anybody actually who's a member of the Nation of Islam at this point in time. I knew one person, but they, they, it was her mother, and she recently passed. But it's sort of like I know a lot of people, and I know that they practice, but just as an African-American, they don't seem to be out there that much. Do you have a sense on what the number of people who are Muslim in the African-American community, in the African-American gay community, because I will say that also, that are not the ones that I know, more of them are members of the LGBTQ community than just like mm -hmm. the community in general. Do you have any sense of the numbers? Well, see, the problem with the numbers, and it's not that it's a problem for me per se, I'm, just, I'm not a statistician, so I can't really give you Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, real, real, real numbers, but I think that more often media as well as others are focusing on immigrant Muslims, which fall some anywhere between two to three million in that front, in that range, including those who've come here and then they've, you know, they may have second or third generations here by this time. So that's that. But then when we talk about uh, Muslims who are Black, Latino, Asian, um, Native American, who are who are part of the the larger Muslim, referred to as the National Association of Muslim Americans, um, that those numbers can be almost equal depending on what part of the country, mostly urban, east coast, west coast, and urban areas, you're going to find many more people. Though they may not identify, may not identify be going to mosque, and you know, but they may follow or feel a strong connection to their earlier training and uh, faith in Islam. So it, the numbers are, not, are very difficult to, to pull together, but I think that there's probably about an equal number of native and uh, foreign Muslims in the world, I mean, being in the United States. You know, when you're participating in, and I know I've seen you at Creating Change, I've seen you at all these different things, you know, one of the, the conversations that we often hear about in the LGBT community is like this, these churches and our ministers hate us and the alienation and trying to, to get these Christian churches to, you know, forget that, you know, hate the, what is it, love the sinner, hate the sin, and, and trying to reconcile with their church. And it seems like our community has a lot of that. I mean, it's a, it's a, where do you come in when you're in these uh, ecumenical interfaith networking? Where do you come in and, and with that discussion, or do you make our discussion about our spirituality bigger than why don't they accept me or they're doing this to us? Well, 
I think that uh, I have a lot of um, Muslims approach me, and they come from a diversity of backgrounds, not just uh, black American, but they could be um, of a diversity of backgrounds covering the spectrum. They could be Southeast Asian or African, uh, Gulf states, or come from the, the Caucasians, like the people from Bosnia. Or just born and raised here in the United States, even so, or South America, mm-hmm. and so it's the diversity of people that I talk with. But one of the things that continues to um, be an overall, overall arching, or overarching thing, is that people are teaching a concept of perfection, but in actuality, perfection is never reached. But people are in the process of perfecting themselves, meaning that for each challenge that they come to, they handle it a little bit better, or they may not be as successful, but with continuous growth and development that they become more successful. And I think this is the way in which approaching one's faith is most positive, for it allows us the flexibility, the diversity that's um, created in the process. how I explain that in many instances is that in some of the Quranic verses that are there, and I'm not proof, you know, text-proofing or anything of this nature, but there's um, a particular one. There's several places in the Quran, but this particular one I'm referring to is in, um, in chapter 30, verses uh, 22, where, and it's in a, a set of verses that talk about how uh, our Creator created the world in such a way, but also created us in, in particular as different tongues and colors for us to get to know each other better as people. And for many people, the tongues and colors are very obvious, the tongues meaning languages and colors meaning races. But the Quran also encourages people to see things from the inside, from the unseen part, from the hidden thing that might be there as well. And when we look at these things of tongues and colors, it reveals the, the internal part of who we are, um, the, the shackle, which refers to the outer form, but then our fitra relates to our inner form. So when we say tongues and colors, of course, our tongues can be our tastes and styles of doing things. You know, you like Coca-Cola, I like Sprite, somebody else like Fruit Punch, or our mm-hmm. styles of wearing clothing, materials that we like, our way of doing things. But the colors part was the one that gave me the most difficulty, and it took several months of contemplating it. You know, sometimes you lift up, sit in the back of your head, and, you know, um, ferment, and then all of a sudden uh, you have that aha moment. Well, the colors mm-hmm. came out to me as being the person, a basic um, psychology 101. Some people are always sad and blue. Some people are always green and envy. Others are yellow as a coward. Some are always in anger, red in anger. Some people have evil hearts. So that showed the temperament. And that, when, I, when that happened, I went, oh, my goodness, Allah has blessed me with understanding that in our DNA to put together all these diverse things, that's why we can have 8 billion people and not one fingerprint be the same. You wow. see, so it just it just throws me into a state of awe, A W E, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and not mm-hmm. fear, because then I can say that the create my creator I depend upon. There's nothing that I cannot say. There's nothing that I cannot call out and say, Allah, this is my issue. These are some things that are going on. Help me move forward. 
and it's through that process. And it is also the, the prayer that helped me in this many years ago in that when I would do the sujood, uh, that's part of the prayer when you're, you're doing the prayer, when you place your forehead to the ground. Mm-hmm. And at that point, this is um, many scholars, particularly the Sufis, will encourage people to release their concerns and to release their supplications to our Creator at that point. And I found that through that process of releasing it there, when I sat back up, I was free. I had let go of the question. And when I sat back, they gave me the space and time to possibly be inspired with an answer. And sometimes it did happen that way. In other instances, I would be left with such a greater sense of inner peace, I could be patient and allow life to unfold. And my discoveries, my answers, my um, calls to what I needed to do would come from the environment around me. Sometimes it would be a child making a joke or saying something, or it might be listening to, some, you know, overhearing the conversation on the bus or subway, you know, all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Or picking up the newspaper and reading something, you go like, there's my answer right there. So it, I found that through letting go, I made a lot more space for me to receive what I needed. Because if I kept the stuff in my head all the time, which I felt when I was Christian, I was supplicating, I was always wondering, when is God going to do this? This way, it helped me manifest to let go and then to be willingly and open to seeing um, the newness of what I needed to do with fresh eyes, so to speak. You know, I think that that is such a, a great perspective. You know, just visualizing you do that, and as you talked about how you felt, you know, I could feel that. You know what I mean? I mean, how that would be, like, so freeing and open your mind and, and to the, and, you know, like, see what, what unfolds before you. And often that's like, you know, when you hear, particularly in the LGBTQ community, and um and in our black community, because I know I've gone to something, and I mean, and here at this point, I'll hear someone say, you know, and I go to that church every Sunday, and I tithe, and they say these things about me, and, and it's so hurtful, and I feel like, and I'm going like, well, why are you still going there and giving them your money? You know, it's sort of like, you know, to open your mind to that, that, that there's this huge, this this. To me, it's almost like limiting what you're saying God is. You know, that you have to go through this person. If you don't get that approval, then somehow or other you're forgetting all the goodness, all the greatness, all that, that that's out there. How do you see our movement, you know, and you know, I'm not telling anybody, you know, give away up your faith or anything, but how do you see us where, to where maybe that we can go in and transform our relationship with religion so that this, this seems to be like a continual stumbling, stumbling block for the black LGBT community where, you know, and the ones who are involved in other things. I mean, I know friend, I have friends who are Buddhist, friends who, who seem to be like in a better place than the ones who are like in the, in the Christianity loop. How do, you, mm-hmm. how do we move our leadership into having these discussions to get over the stumbling block? Well, it's it's always a, a meeting of minds, and I think there's a need for everyone to recognize that knowledge has to be obtained. It can't be just given to you. If that was the case, we you know we would all be geniuses, but through osmosis, you know, 
Just mm-hmm. pick up a book and pick it up and just go with it. And go, oh, you're like you feel like you're in the Matrix. You put in the the the, the chip, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you just know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think yeah. that that's the way, but I think that we have to uh, work in unison to dispel the the common myths that really may not have any validity in our day and time. Mm. What I mean by this is that even among our community, this particular queer community, that we have a a number of issues that have to do with our own personal lives. And sometimes we we go through it and we wind up being broken. And that brokenness then comes out and attacks other people who may also be broken. And when two broken people are at each other, there is no peace. There is no way in which you can do this. This is why I say that in my experience, I didn't come out of that way in terms of being broken. So I saw the world in a different light. But to help those in my, in my, through my pastoral counseling of those who have been broken, I encourage them to look at those issues that caused them to feel that they were not part of the group. And in some societies, it's tribalism. If you don't do as they say do, then you're, you know, you're ostracized. Uh, but that didn't have anything to do, as I say, then that has anything to do with who you are as a full person. You may not get along with people. Who doesn't get along with everybody? Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But the reality is that does, that does that mean that you have to alter your goals and your aspirations in order to adhere to that particular framework? I can see it much more difficult be a much more difficult issue to do if you lived in uh, in a majority Muslim country. But if you live in the West, you have a much more openness of freedom and availability to do things. And sometimes you just have to say, no, I'm not doing that, and I believe in something different. And, you know, strike out on your own. So it's, it's not an easy answer for everybody, but I think that we can encourage ourselves to become better educated, and through our own education, then we can then challenge the status quo through that process of education, meaning that, if, as I used to say to one of my siblings, and I won't mention who it is, but he had an education <laughs> to theology, and I said to him a couple of decades ago, I said, until you're Dr. Reverend so-and-so-and-so, I don't want to hear that because my knowledge and training and education far supersedes what you're telling me because there's a belief that, you know, sometimes people have this belief that when a, um, when a new prophet comes, there's this miracle that just pops out of the sky, you know, and mm-hmm. that's not true. I said a lot of different things are in place, economics. How many years have they been at war? Has it been destructive to the community? All these things are important aspects before people decide this time for a change. So stop believing in, in this, the, this miracle thing that just happens at a, a whim. It doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. History doesn't, has not proven that this is the actual process that it goes through. So you take those things and challenge the status quo. You say, my understanding is this, and it's not to attack the person, but attack their ideas, attack their conversations, attack the things in which they're saying and say, well, I'm not finding validity in this. And I think this is some of the ways in which we can make it easier. Well, with that, we're going to take our first break. And um, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Mecca and some of the other things that you've done. So we'll be right back. 
This is Collections by Michelle Brown and with our special guest, Imam Dai Abdullah. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Well, we're back. Um, one of the things that we were reading about was that you produced a 14-part module on LGBTQ Muslim youth, their friends, family, and community. What was that module about, and why was it produced? Okay. Well, in uh, 2013, um, MPV, I was uh, director of LGBT outreach for Muslims for Progressive Values. Um, and we received a grant from Carpenter Foundation to do this module. And what I did is I did additional research to help uh, Muslim youth better understand their lives through several prisms or through several frameworks of being queer, meaning that looking at Islamic history, looking at the issue of sexuality, psychology, and various other things to help people know more about what it means or what has it meant to be queer throughout Islamic history. And it was through that process of of the research that I was able to develop these these modules. I don't remember all of them, but I think there were seven in one area, seven in in the history of seven from the psychological side of things. And so it helped me, um, well, I was able to help a number of people to get a better foundation on things. For example, historically, um, they, many people, Muslims, don't know that there were gay emirs mm. or gay religious leaders. And they go like, what do you mean? Well, it's right there. If you go to 800 Common Era, there was an emir, um, Amr. He was an emir. And he was the last Arab, full Arab blood emir before the transition between the Arab um, control over the Islamic Empire and the beginning of the Persian control over the Islamic Empire. And so that was the thing. It was actually his younger brother who was half Arab and half Persian who killed the full-blooded brother who happened to be gay. It was a political subterfuge that went on between the families, the two different families. And of course, um, the the Persian side of it used the homosexuality because it's always been taboo in Zoroastrianism that um, this was a reason to kill the older brother. So you see how mm-hmm. just the history of subterfuge, you know, and empire uh-huh. building and stuff, you know, plays out. So when people learn about these things, they, they're shocked. And I say, well, I'm not the one discovered. There are other scholars who've done this centuries ago, so nothing new. Or even the idea that the, during the Ottoman Empire in 1858, they legalized um, homosexuality by law. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a commonly accepted process that people did live a diversity of lives prior to that time. But under colonialism, they 
removed the law 100 years before they did it in the West. So these kinds of things that once you have that information, it helps you better uh, discuss these things with people uh, about being queer within the Muslim context. I know, and it's sort of like often how we always tell people, you know, being, gay people aren't brand new. Like we've been there throughout history, and to find these things, and like you said, you're not making it up. You're going like, well, here, right here, and here, right here. This is historical. I know that that has been helpful with young people. I know that if I was a young person struggling with it, going like, oh, wow, I'm not, you know, because often it's like, who am I? Is there something wrong with me? To know that historically, do you find that that has helped within the family context of acceptance of LGBTQ in the Muslim community? Yes, it has, because once they, they know that historically um, this has existed, it it changes their perspective because often they, they've been trained in a particular school of thought. It's like a person who may be Pentecost but doesn't know anything about Catholicism or someone who may be Episcopalian and know nothing about um, Southern Baptist, so to speak. You know, there's a mm-hmm. where you, you're so, sort of siloed. And when you're siloed, you only know about that particular framework. But when you come out of the silo, you see that there's a number of different uh, or greater diversity among the, the the different frameworks. And I think that helps a lot. And young people need that kind of um, help so that they can see that there is a diversity that's there. And that diversity is based upon um, how you approach these things. Because like with anything else, Michelle, some things we know, and then later on we learn better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the goal mm-hmm. is to try to get some understanding, and then from there see how it unfolds for you. Because I have, you know, I, I whenever I'm in the city and I get a chance to go by the secondhand bookstores, I always take a chance to see if I can find a book that I may have, you know, that may be of interest to me or something that someone had in their collection, and is no longer in print. And I come across some gems every now and then which are great books or books that remind me of my childhood, and, and I use those things. So it's just a way of, of getting to know that these things are available to us in a number of ways and to always keep an open mind as you continue to learn more and more. That's the only way that you're going to make room for a bigger heart, a bigger understanding to be able well, to I- deal with these particular issues. So, I mean, and, and which is a perfect lead-in to the Mecca Institute. Can you give us some background on how did it come about and what are you doing? I mean, I think that everybody, the fact that you have an online theological school because you said, like, you can go to um, a bookstore, and many people now don't go into a secondhand bookstore, not recognizing the gyms that are there, but to have an online school where where you learn. So can you tell us about Mecca Institute? How did it come back? come about, and just tell us about it, please. Okay. Well, while I was out in California doing the videotaping for the videos that we were talking about that was done, the modules, I had mm-hmm. a vision. As I said, I have I keep having these visions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the voice, then a voice spoke to me and said, it's time to start a school. And very similar to when I started the mosque, um, you know, sometimes you're there and you're just in this deja vu moment. And you go like, okay, next step. And you just start off with the next foot. You know, the foot moves off and you're on your way. Um, mm-hmm. So I had the vision 
and one of the fellows who was out there at the time um, is an attorney as well, and he specialized in, in um, developing nonprofits. So I spoke with him, and I said, well, I want to start this. He says, fine, let's do this. And we started talking, and by that June of 2014, we had officially start, you know, filed here in D.C. as the Mecca Institute. Um, what Mecca Institute is overall is that it's an, it's an online school that allows people to, men, women, youth, um, sexual minorities, as well as minority sex within Islam and non-Muslims, to learn more about Islam in a much more kind and softer version of it than the Wahhabism that people run into today. And this is mm -hmm. the, Wahhabism is like the thing that's been going on. It's been promoted in the U.S. over the last 75 years or so. The Saudi oil money brought that ideology in and has used that oil money to spread it around the world. Um, but one of the problems is that because of this, people who, are, who come into these communities um, either through birth or either through conversion, they wind up being taught a particular cultural manifestation of Islam. And many times it leaves people within those communities ostracized, it leaves them feeling uh, sequestered, and in other instances they, they totally reject the religion and leave the faith altogether. And these are things that, you know, as well as the extremism that we see today, too. So what it is is that the, we want to offer people a new opportunity to see Islam in a different light. And through that process of educating ourselves through interacting with other people who are parts of the larger Muslim community, we learn to not fear it as we've been taught to do so. For example... Um, when we have prayers, I always offer, offer um, opportunity for women to lead prayers because I think once they have the opportunity to do so, the fear of doing so ends, and we have more women leading prayers, <laughs> you know, like that. And so a person would say, well, I'm, I'm Shia, and I'm, I'm not Sunni, which is what, like I said, different between being Catholic and Pentecostal, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm not against that. I said, well, then please explain to people the very difference. Like uh, Shia use a little piece of clay that they use in which they touch their head to the ground upon. And I say, explain why you use it so people understand. And once people get to see what the difference is, I go, oh, it's not much different than what the Sunnis do. And then everybody joins in prayer, and afterwards the conversations, and people now know, oh, Shias do the same thing we do except for A, B, and C, you know. Mm. And knowledge, and that kind of knowledge then avoids us bring, stand, standing on prejudices because we lack knowledge about someone. Well, I think that that's, that's interesting because, as you know, like you said, as a, a Sunni and a Shia or a woman who will lead to prayer, as you become understanding of it and you feel, you know, it's not no longer the other or that different or, like, maybe I'm violating, as you, you find it, then comes a unity and that unity can go out and explain to those outside the community, you know, this is who and what we're about. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I have several um, friends, and this all happened through the, the queer side. But, uh, for example, there's a good friend of mine. His name is um, Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, and his partner, Stephen Goldberg, and talk about an oddity, right? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but he's a rabbi, he's an Orthodox rabbi, and he has, I've known Stephen now about 
16, going on 17 years now. I think we met in 2000. And so it's through this process of interacting with other faiths. You know Bishop Cheeks. Um, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with Bishop Cheeks. I've known him since 1979 when I came to Washington, D.C. So I was saying these different people, we interact with each other and we learn from each other through the process of knowing that our creator is much bigger, but we as human beings need to understand our interconnectedness, our, our intersectionalities, if you will, and how they relate to each other. So these are the conversations that we have, and it helps us bridge those gaps so that way Christians don't feel so absent or see connectedness to Judaism in new ways or see connectedness to Islam in new ways and vice versa. Muslims see they're interconnected to others as well and that they're not this separate group that's been promoted in the West or worldwide in the media, that they're really the separate hateful group. They're not. No, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, how you were saying how just like a little thing, like how do you worship? Well, one uses earth and what, you know, I mean, and, and to have a conversation and, and the fact that that isn't known, you would think that, you know, well, for a lack of knowledge, if people want to put everybody under this big, umbrella and say, well, they all do it this way, you know. But even within that, within two different groups, Sunni and, and Shia, there are differences, in that, and they're not huge differences, but to sit down together and to do that. Yeah, there are, I do want to sort of interject that, that sometimes there are some tri- doctrinal differences, mm-hmm. but they, they vary more so based on cultural development, meaning that if you go to their early history, the culture who may have been in this part of the world did things a certain way, and then another culture in a different part of the world did something a different way. So as Islam went into those cultures, you know, cultures absorbed religion into it. Mm-hmm. And so as Islam was absorbed into those cultures, certain ways and how they manifested and how they interacted with each other as people were varied because of the differences in the cultures and their histories. Now, those who would sign up and go to the online theological school, are they looking for a career in theology or, I mean, are they all just Muslims? Are there people from all over just seeking to understand better? Well, our our student body, because we're going to officially open in in August of this year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're looking at, we have three different tracks that the school Mm -hmm. is, the certificate program, the master's level certificate program which will provide them with the traditional um, pastoral care aspect, where chaplains mm-hmm. are in hospitals and prisons, military, um, public service, things of this nature. Uh, that's the more traditional line, but then we have two additional tracks. One is Muslim leadership, where people can develop mosques and develop mm-hmm. community centers in their, in their area. And they know they have the pastoral care, but now they have the business knowledge. The third mm-hmm. one is one that's based on interfaith, which are for people who have PR and media background. They get the same pastoral training, but then they get emphasis in interfaith and understanding the diversity and the connectedness of the, the Islam with the other Abrahamic faiths. Are you teaching all of this, or who do you have as your oh. – what, what type of faculty? I mean, you know, because, I mean, I know I'm, you're a pretty powerful guy, but, you know. Um, no, I'm not teaching yeah. all of it, I assure you. Okay, so, so who is, where, where is your faculty coming from? Is this coming – is the faculty coming as an extension of the think tank side of it? 
Well, actually, we have professors who are from different parts of the world, in particular, because mm. um, let me put it this way. When I had this vision, I spoke to a number of Islamic scholars I knew from I know from around the world, and I said, mm-hmm. we have to approach this to avoid the East-West kerfuffle concept. We have to approach this as a global understanding of Islam. So, for example, one of our professors who resides in London, but he's from Southeast Asia, he's Malay, and so he understands the Malay history. He understands the history of Islam in Southeast Asia. So he's a specialist in that area. I have one who will be coming on later, but he's in China. He's in Beijing, China. And he will talk about Islam in China and the Far East. We have another who is um, from Western Africa, and he's, his, his background is in history. And he's going to, dis, um, he's going to talk about Islamic history across in Africa and also in the Middle East. We have another one who's Latino who just graduated two years ago from Temple, and he has a specialty in dealing with um, Islam in Europe and Islam in South America in, from the Latino perspective. And we also have a sister, uh, another Detroiter, who's a, a linguist, and she's <laughs> going to be teaching Arabic and uh, Spanish and a couple of other languages uh, for us. So and it's it's of a diversity of people from different parts of the world who are coming together to provide um, a comprehensive understanding of Islam from a global perspective. And one of the things that we emphasize is that we want an Islam for today, for contemporary times. And so when we look backwards for things, we look for those Quranic ethics and how mm-hmm. we interact with other as human beings and not necessarily the rituals that people performed back then so that we can manifest and do things for today's world at the standards of human rights, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. That's the minimum standard. So if, you're, if anything that's from the past doesn't meet that standard, toss it out. It's for that time in the past. And what we need for today is rethinking of how we're going to do this at these standards of human rights and above into the future. One of the things I have that I, I did in one of my TED Talks is I expressed that 150 years from now, we're going to have people more likely living on other planets or asteroids or whatever, doing whatever they're going to be doing. And I'm certain Muslims are going to be there too. So my question to them is, which way is Kaaba? In which direction do you pray to the holiest spot on earth? And people look at me and ask me the question, like, well, what is it? And I tell them, I don't know. I really do Mm -hmm. not know. I said, but 150 years now, those people will have figured out the proper answer to it. So you can't tell me that something that someone did 1,500 years ago in a ritual or a way in which they carry something out is the only way that it can be done for the rest of human time. Impossible. So I say that we have to always be open to innovation and understanding that for our particular times, what used to be, what our grandparents used to, our forefathers and foremothers used to do may not be appropriate for the day, and we have to figure out a way to get better results. And that means we have to sit down and think about it, talk about it, discuss how we can make it better. Well, you know, I, I, I like that you say that you have visions because I often tell people, you know, you can call it the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, you know, because I'm not going to step on it. But you know what? There is that direct connection, and often people don't listen to that. And how we go from, like you said, what it was like, you know, 
hundreds of years ago, what it's going to be like in the future. To move it that way, it's like there's this master plan, and apparently it's like, okay, well, it's time for a tweak. And that tweak came through that vision that you had. It didn't mean that you had to sit down and, and map out everything, but it was like that seed that you took then and planted it and I'm listening to all these people who you say who are coming together to teach these varying different parts at Mecca. I mean, and that's just like if you didn't listen to those visions, and so never stop, you know, it wouldn't evolve to that. And the fact that it also, it isn't just like one thing. And that's what I like, that you're talking about, some people are talking about leadership. Um, some people, it's going to be that master's program. Some of it is that interfaith work. And to look at it other than, okay, well, this is just like we're just going to move along the same old doctrine and keep it going. You saw these different tracks. And, you know, or maybe you didn't see these tracks immediately, but you saw the need to do that, and then the rest filled in. That's true. Very, very true. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that's so important is that when we open up and see that these things are not necessary, meaning that it's mandatory that they be done a certain way, we can then see where people may find discomfort, but then we can have conversations with them to where they find a new level of comfort with the new ideas and the new ways of seeing things too. That's the dialogue. I'm not saying people will, will readily accept it, over, you know, just overwhelmingly accept it. No. But we can talk about those things, and once people have a chance to talk about their fears, talk about those things that may challenge them, and they come to some resolution, then it's much easier for them to step forward in faith and help make these changes come about. Well, I tell you, you see, I, I was ready to jump again. I've heard you talk about Mecca, and I know that you've been working on it, and I knew it was close. And, I mean, to me, it's very exciting. Okay, from that vision to where, like you said, you know, August, you're ready to go. Sure. How do you feel? I mean, and, do you, you know, I know that you're not probably thinking, okay, well, I'm done, but how excited are you about this? Well, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Um, one of the things is that that continues to push me helps me get up every day in the morning besides my sense of gratefulness for the opportunity to be the one to help work with others in bringing this change about. But it's also the, the process that when, you, when we leave this world, we have to know that we have worked, did our very best to what we tried to achieve. And that's what I have left. That's my legacy. So this mm-hmm. is part of the process I'm working with. And it's not for me to be this, you know, the super-duper, you know, um, what, what was the term they use? Um, Califala, um, I can't even uh, think super, of it. Super, yeah, <laughs> I know it's super, super you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not about that. It's not being, you know, Dick Van Dyke and Billy with that, that particular Disney story. But uh, the thing is that we, we stand on our, our vision. We stand on the things that we believe, and I think I hope that when people think about me, it will be one that he was a caring person, that he listened. He spent time listening to me and offered the best that he had from his, you know, um, bags of wisdom, if you will. <laughs> and I think that this is what people look for. It's not always to correct them, but to give them a sense of hope and to know that 
tomorrow there is much better, you know, it's like the song tomorrow, you know, it's only a day away, but it keeps your mm-hmm. hopes and aspirations going. And I'm looking forward to seeing more Muslim women leadership and youth leadership unfolding in the West. And I think that we're going to see major changes that come about um, overall that Islam is, is going through a reform now, um, a reformation now, and a revival. And this has been something that's been happening about every 150, 200 years anyway, historically. So we're now in that new cycle. And I think that I'll just be one of the people uh, working with a group of other people who are helping bringing this about across the spectrum. You know, when I listen to you talk, before we, I'm going to share this with you before we go into our next break, I think, you know, how there's things that you remember. And although we were raised Catholic, you know, and very, I think other than funerals, we didn't go to a non-Catholic church. But my mother had been born, raised Methodist. And my mother would sing this song, and I don't remember all of it, but one of the words of line of it always sticks with me. And what I heard in my head as you were talking, was, and I don't even know the name of the song, but I remember that the line went, if I can help someone along the way, then my life will not have been in vain. And I can still hear my mother singing that. And as you talked about how you were doing that, that that refrain came into my mind because it's like you're not doing it for, you know, like you said, that Dick Van Dyke moment, that fame and fortune. You're doing it where some of the things that you're putting in, in place, when we're up there on that space station in Mars, someone won't have out a compass triangle and like, well, which way, which way is east? I can't do this if I don't go east. They'll be living those principles. So yes. with that, we're going to take a break, and then we'll be right there. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Join the collection at www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com. with more conversation with tonight's guest here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And, you know, I mean, I just find you one of the most interesting people. And I will tell you, whenever I see you, you're somebody I just want to hug. You know, you give us hugs. And, and, you know, I mean, but there's just like, and even like how uh, when you were talking about how when you pray and how there's just that peace that sort of comes through with what you talk, how you talk, how you walk through life. And you have been, when you talk about intersectionality, I I know that you get it, and that you bring your whole self into these sometimes difficult conversations, but it helps move people in a certain direction and where I think ultimately we're all going to, to be better. And I'd like to ask you, how do you feel that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted these directions that you've taken, and how do you think they're going to impact your future work? Okay. (laughs) That's a very good question. I haven't thought about that too far in the head. (laughs) Uh, I think that it's going to be – well, first let me say this. I I thank you for the the compliment and, you know, the hugs and everything, but I think that what happens and moves people more is that I can show – that I'm not this 
push, you know, keep keep you at arm's length kind of person. But mm-hmm. that I want people to understand that I have experienced many different things in my life, and I will talk about them, good or bad. Um, I had a young person say something to me a couple of months ago, and I told him, I said, you act as if though that I've always been an imam. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I said, no, I know what you're talking about. Yes, I did too. I said, back in 1977, so at such a place, they did the same thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it helps them see that I'm, I'm, although I may be different today, that doesn't mean that I have not experienced or have seen things, <clears throat> excuse me, seen things that have happened that may be part of their lives today. Do I do it today? No. But had I done it? Yes. So mm-hmm. it's an admission to them to let them know that I'm, I'm, I'm as human as you are and that I can aspire and so can you aspire to become better. And so I think that's an important lesson I try to pass on to people, but also, too, uh, to care for them in such a way. Um, I've, you know, pastoral counseling with the families and things of this nature. Sometimes I have to say, you know, I know it's not, not easy to do this, but what are some of the things that you're trying to aspire? Because sometimes we get caught up in our tunnel vision, mm-hmm. and we have to learn to break from it and look up again and see, oh, the sky is still blue. You know, the sun is shining, and I think that's part of the process. And that's what I, I think is, is how I'm moving to make certain that people continue to recognize that though the, the, the sky may be cloudy, on the other side of the clouds, the sky remains blue. The sun still shines, or the moon is there, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that we have to be faithful to our belief that even if I, wake up, I don't wake up in the morning, certain things will continue to be consistent for human life, and that's how I accept it. So I, I, I stay grateful to the opportunities, and when I wake up in the morning, I say thank you, Creator, for having provided me another day, and when I go to bed at night, thank you for the opportunities and hope that my work that I've done for the day has not harmed anyone and that someone grows from it. And, you know, and I, I think well. that <laughs> There's something about uh, about showing up, and like I said, and that was one of the things that I, like I said, when I see you, because you know how, as a kid, how something, and you do something, your mother would say, "Hold your head up." You walk in the room. I mean, and there would be some people who would say, "Well, good," you know, as my dad would say, "Good night, nurse." You know, you black, you are a man. Okay, now you're gonna do this mother thing. You know, you just want people to beat you down, but instead. You don't, you know, walk like, okay, well, let me, like, ease on in the room. You squawk into that room boldly, you know. You know that people are going to, to see you because you're a tall guy. You know people are going to see you. But it's like that hold your head up and, you know, be, be you. And I think that that, particularly for some young people, that that is an important message and that, you know, how your presence and how you are in that Space. Yes. Can transform can throw, that space. Can I throw something in, something that my mom taught me when I was a little kid? Um, you know, my mother was, you know, was in a Southern Baptist church, and one day I remember she was going for, I think it was a Women's Day event right before Mother's Day, mm-hmm. and my mother was, was truly into fashion and stuff, so she had on this cream-colored you know, skirt and blouse thing and little short jacket. It was in the, you know, in the spring. 
and she was on her way to the church. And while I was home, I noticed it had rained, you know, how you have the spring showers. And when my mom came back a few hours later, I, you know, all over her, her little outfit, there were these little, little gray spots. And I said, what happened to you? She says, baby, you have to understand something. Sometimes uh, when you go out the door and you're okay, you don't know what may happen between the time you left the door and when you come back in the door. And so I, she explained to me that when she got off the bus, she was, you know, the shower had happened, and she was waiting across the street. Someone drove by and splashed her with mm-hmm. dirty water. Mm-hmm. So she was about a block from the church, and she said neither she could have turned around and came back home and would miss the event or just go ahead. So she went on to the church, went into the bathroom, took some, you know, towel and knocked off all the dirt and washed and did things, and she went on and had a great time. She said she saw one of her friends she hadn't seen in about 10 years who was at the event, and she had a wonderful time. So sometimes we can't be so subconscious about what's going on and how people are thinking. But when we do that, we lose the very essence of the beauty that we can live in our lives. And so I've always used that as one of the things that even when I'm there, like you said, being present, showing up, you have to show up. And if you show up, you encourage people to always show up. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming to the end of tonight's collection, and um, you talked about, okay, if people want to hear your TED Talks or find out about Mecca or find out where in the world are you not? <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I you know, the fact that you're, you're traveling. And, um, but before we go there, I want to ask you one thing. Many people I know are concerned about this uh, executive order on immigration. And you talked about how you left and you came back. And, you know, and you know, people would say, well, just by your name, and they say that they're asking about religion. What words of advice would you tell someone if you're anticipating going, if you're coming back, so that you don't go into it? Because sometimes you get what you expect. If you go into it fearful, you're going to get something to be fearful about. Well, as someone who travels a lot, as someone who, like I said, might be pulled over just because of your name, just because of your faith, what would you say to people as they travel? And how important is it for us to continue to travel and go about? Well, I'll put on my legal hat and Mm -hmm. respond to that. And that is that you respond to questions by answering only the question not to be fearful, not to be intimidated, but to remember those things that you have, speak slowly, um, speak intently, and respond to the questions that are being asked. Those are the things that are there. People are empowered to do certain types of things. Don't stop them from doing their jobs, but it doesn't mean that you have to be um, adverse to them doing their jobs rather easily. So if a person asks you a question, well, where have you been? You say, well, I just got off the plane coming from such and such place. And that's it. And if they have mm-hmm. more information of what they want to know, then respond to each question as they ask it. One of the problems I find people do is that they run off at the mouth, and you don't have to. That's not a question. So if someone asks you a particular thing, then you respond to it. And the rest of it, you just keep on moving forward. So I don't see any problems. You know, there's, there, if there's no signals mm-hmm. outside of them just asking 
questions and respond to the questions and move on. So, uh, well, I know that you're going to be heading off. So now give us those points of contact and how we can find out about Mecca, um, how someone might be able to hear uh, one of your past TED Talks. Okay. If you would go to, um, it's www.mecca, M-E-C-C-A, hyphen, institute, common spelling, dot org, and that will take you to, you'll land on the website, and you can see them. If you scroll down, you'll see the, where the TED Talk is. There. We have one of the TED Talks that's there. Oh. You can watch. And if you want to learn more about Mecca Institute, the board of directors, the school and the programming and application and brochure, that's available. And as we move into 2018, I think Tank will start up. And mm -hmm. so each part we have a goal that over the next uh, five years, certain things. But my ultimate goal is by 2022, I'd like to have 50 inclusive mosques in the West mm -hmm. so that people will have in major urban areas and smaller places where people will be able to find a mosque where they feel welcomed and people in the mosque can feel interactive. You know, they can interact with other faiths and other peoples in their communities and build a much better a framework, a much better community for people to live and love and prosper. Yeah. I'm looking at the page now. I think that, that it's great um, there, and I see your, your, your think tank and also. And I see something that's really important. You have a donate page. This is important work. Important work sometimes takes money. <laughs> and uh, I would encourage people, I mean, even if you say, well, I don't want to, to go to the institute and do that, but by supporting this, you are supporting the development of minds and philosophies and a way of life that in ultimately we all benefit from. But you know, again, sometimes, Michelle, we, we, we wind up, it's difficult for us to, you know, feel like we, we have our hand out, and I'm learning that we have to ask, and so thank you for reminding me to ask that yes, we, can, we appreciate donations and that, so that we can help change the way in which people understand Islam, both Muslims themselves and non-Muslims, so that we can make our world a more peaceful and better place. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I will always have your back on that because as we do this work, often that we find, you know, and, you know, I often tell people it's like an investment. And if you believe in the human race and if you believe in the human community, you invest in things that don't necessarily have to be, you know, what's in your backyard. You invest in things that, that lift us all up. And I thank you for the work that you're doing. I am going to be following it. I mean, it's an exciting thing to me. It's an exciting project. I'm going to be following it. Um, I don't know if I'm going to take a class, but who knows? I, you, might, you, might be, you might be surprised. One day there might be, you'll see Michelle Brown signing up for something because she just wants to learn a little bit more. Uh, about what's well, going on in this world. Well, I do want to say that we, we are, in 2018, we'll, we will be expanding um, our coursework so that people who are not in the certificate program, but they will be able to take additional courses that are related to contemporary times. And now we'll talk about that again when that comes about, too. <laughs> well, well, see, now I've got you hooked. We will be talking again. <laughs> But again, I want to I want to thank you for being on the show. 
um, and for sharing this information and for sharing your life. Uh, I want you to travel safely, and I look forward to talking to you again in the very near future. Well, actually, I will be in Detroit um, in the, about a week or so, and so I hope that I'll get a chance to run into you then. Okay, well, shoot me a message, and I'll be there, definitely. Definitely. All right. You have okay, a great one. Well, Thank you again. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Good night. So I want, to, I want to thank again our guests. I want to thank you, our listening audience. You know, now you can listen to Collections by Michelle Brown, not only on Blog Talk Radio, but on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also listen to past episodes on iTunes. I, mean, I went on myself, and I was just, like, amazed how I could go back. So we're reaching out. We're sharing these incredible stories. And each week we're going to introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. I hope you'll join us right here on Collections by Michelle Brown.